0: Meet with you anytime, Lord. It's it's wonderful for brothers and sisters to come together and praise you, Lord. Sit before you and hear what you would say to your church, Lord. I pray, Lord, that uh, the beauty of your love would touch our hearts tonight in a way, Lord, that would bless you and be pleasing to you, Lord. I pray you grab hold of our hearts, Lord, and cleanse and renew. That special place of stillness of your love, Lord. just want to offer up our hearts to you now, Lord, when we sing praises to you. And Lord, uh, what a joy it is. Joyous time of year, Lord. We're going to have that uh, joy every day throughout the year, Lord. Our King is coming. understand
1: amen amen don't you just love that song It's very 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 powerful and so god is good so glad you're here tonight amen to that the world is surely shaking isn't it yeah it's all, all over all over and i really believe that god is Trying to gain the attention of of the world, sinful man, to come to Him. That's what it's all about. That's why we're here. We're here to bring the good news to others and, and live a life of godliness that God's heart, His love, would be reflected in us to a lost and dying world, and it's in such desperate need of Jesus. You know. It was, Another shooting today in the University of Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah. So a lot to pray about. So Father, we, we, we come to you and we know that this isn't our home. We're pilgrims, we're passing through, yet there's a, there's a challenge to us, Lord, and that is to, to live godly, uh, to walk in the integrity of our God. To bring the love of Christ to others and to share the good news. And it is good news. And I know there's coming a day when we're in heaven that sin will be absolutely absent. And Lord, we look forward to that. But even now, even now, Lord, touch our hearts. If there's anything in our lives that doesn't belong, Lord, show us that we might repent, please. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Tonight, family, we're in 1 Kings chapter 20, and we're going to be studying verses 14 through 43, and then we're also going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Tonight's message is entitled, God is Serious About Sin. He never overlooks it, <clears throat> and sin is what got us to where we are right now you know, in the world, and praise God that he has a solution, and a solution to sin is salvation through jesus christ our lord who died for the sins of mankind for our sin paid a price we could never pay well last week as we began chapter 20 we we looked at this this king ahab uh, a wicked king an evil king king of northern israel and he was under attack by a king named ben hadad of syria and he gathered 32 other kings to join him to conspire against King Ahab. He sent messengers to Ahab saying, You know, pretty boldly, your silver, your gold, they're mine. And I'm going to take my pick of whatever I want. Surprisingly, Ahab conceded without a fight, not even with an argument. And Ben Hadad didn't stop there thinking, Well, this is too easy. I'm going to go for more. I'm going to take your wives. I'm going to take your children, and I will choose the best of the best, and I'm going to call them mine. So Ahab, well, he agreed again. Then he called his leaders together to break this news to them, and basically they said, Ahab, you know what? You're crazy. You cannot consent to that. So based on their feedback, Ahab sent messengers Back to Ben-Hadad saying, I'll give you the first request. I'll give you the gold. I'll give you the silver. But the wives and the children, uh-uh. no way. Well, by now, with this, this back and forth, this bantering, Ben-Hadad is getting a little bit anxious. He's furious. He said, I'm going to take everything from you. Top to bottom, rich and poor, and you'll have nothing left. And, and by the way, the army that I'm sending your way will reduce Samaria to dust, and the dust will be carried away by handfuls by my army. Well, Ahab sent a message to Ben Haddad once again. He said, Don't count your victory before the battle's even fought. So Ben Haddad, he responded like this He says, Well, get ready, get ready for battle. He got his soldiers together and he said, Get ready to attack. Well, then a prophet came on the scene, an unnamed prophet. And here's what he told King Ahab. We see in verse 13, it says, And behold, there came a prophet unto Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou seen all this great multitude? Speaking of the armies that were against him. Behold, I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So here's a king as as wicked as can be, King Ahab. and, And praise God, God is still after Ahab's heart. still trying to break through into his life that Ahab would make a decision for God. And and I'm so grateful that, that God extends his grace to us. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm so grateful that God extended his grace to me time and time and time again, and he extends grace to me every single day. You know, I don't deserve his love yet. I'm lavished by his love and we think about Ahab and we can also consider ourselves too, God could have taken him out at any point in time, any point in Ahab's reign for legitimate reasons but God is working trying to get through to him trying to gain his attention and that's what the world needs, the world needs to, to come to the understanding of Jesus Christ, he's trying to gain the attention of sinful man because god knows how serious sin is sin is destructive sin separates us from god and god always extends his hands and says come 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 to me all i want is your heart and yet day after day week after week month year centuries millennia people still reject the lord Well, the prophet said to Ahab, he said, I'm going through, the word of God came through, I'm going to deliver them into your hand for this purpose. And and what a wonderful purpose this is, that you shall know that I am the Lord. And it's wonderful that God reveals himself. And he reveals himself in ways that, you know, I'm sure every one of you experienced God's revelation to you in a different way. He sure did in mine, I'm sure different from yours. You know, he uses circumstances, and we've been talking a lot about trials and so on, and God uses those things to get our attention. But he never forces himself, does he? He provides opportunity to enter into a relationship with him, and that's what he wants. That's his heart. And it's a relationship with God that is based on a choice, isn't it? In order for something to be meaningful, there has to be a choice to be made, doesn't there? We're not robots. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, that says this, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that thou and thy seed may live. God says, make a decision, but make it the right decision. Choose life, which means there's only one other option, and that's death, apart from Christ. It's death, isn't it? Let's move on to verse 14. After the prophet said, Thou shalt know that I am the Lord, Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus saith the Lord, even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, Who shall order the battle? And he answered, Thou. Ahab asked the questions. The prophet answered, By whom? Or how will the Lord do this? And he said, By the young men of the princes of your governors. And who shall order or begin the battle? And he said, It's you, Ahab. You're going to initiate this. And then, verse 15, he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces, and they were 232. And after them, he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, being 7,000. And they went out at noon. But Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and the kings, the thirty and two kings that helped him. So they went at noon, as, and as soon as the forces were mustered, they, they found Ben-Hadad and all the kings. They were getting drunk. And Ahab and his troops caught Ben-Hadad by surprise. Typically, battles are not fought in the heat of the day. And they went out at noontime, and Ben-Hadad and his kings were getting drunk. So... Ahab dispatched his men, and some of Ben-Hadad's scouts noticed there's troops from Samaria. It says in verse 17, And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, Their men come out from, of Samaria. And he said, Whether they come out for peace, take them alive. Or whether they come out for war, take them alive. Either way, just take them. Pretty bold, boastful man. Was Ben-Hadad, so these young men, verse 19, of the princes of the provinces came out of the city and the army which followed them. And they slew every one his man, and the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. So after this battle where God clearly provided the victory, I mean, there's a small army against this huge army of the Syrians. Ben-Hadad fled. His troops were defeated. And God, God's the majority here, right? (laughs) If God is for us, who could be against us? If we have God, we are among the majority. Well, the prophet came back on the scene to speak with Ahab again. We see this in verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said unto him, Go strengthen thyself, and mark, or take note, and and see what thou doest. For at the return of the year, which is referring to the springtime, the king of Syria will come up against thee again. He said he's going to come back. Now, talk about an intelligence plan. This is incredible intelligence. Begin making plans now, because this king of Syria, which, by the way, has fled, He's going to come back and attack you in the spring. They're not giving up. So stay on guard, ready your troops, and strengthen yourselves, and prepare for what will happen in the spring. So, as Ahab is getting God's counsel, Ben Hadad is getting counsel from his servants. Verse verse 23 And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. They're they're making excuses now. But let us fight them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than them. He's saying, listen, their God only fights battles well in the hills. That's why they defeated us. Their God is weak in the plains. We're stronger than they are, but we need to fight them in the plain. In other words, this is a guaranteed victory. We'll fight them in the plains. In verse 24, And do this thing, take the kings away, every man out of his place, and put captains in their rooms, and number thee an army like the army that thou hast lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he hearkened unto their voice, and he did so. Okay, get rid of the kings that I had before, that she had before. Get a real army. Replace the horses that were lost. Replace the chariots. We're going to go out to battle once again, but we're going to fight them in the plain this time. We're stronger than they are. That's the counsel that they gave Ben-Hadad, and he received it and did what they said. And it came to pass, verse 26, at the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were numbered, or they mustered and were all present In other words, they had the provision and went against them, and the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. Sounds a little bit outnumbered, doesn't it? Like two little flocks of goats against the Syrians who filled the country. Now, what imagery here? He says Israel was gathered like just two flocks of goats. Syria, however, enormous army. Israel is surrounded. And then Verse 21, or 28, excuse me, there came a man of God. Good time to hear from God, right? There came a man of God and spoke unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is the God of the hills, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore will I deliver all this great multitude into thine hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to deliver the enemies into the hand of Ahab in order to communicate to him as well as the Syrians that this God that we serve is a God of the hills, he's a God of the valleys, he's a God of the plains, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. That's the God that he is, and that's the God that we serve. So God is giving us victory so that the world can know who he is and fully who he is. Verse 29 and they pitched or encamped one over against the other seven days. And so it was that in the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel slew of the Syrians 100,000 footmen in one day. This is hand-to-hand combat now. This is how they fought wars. Israel is completely outnumbered. They were surrounded, yet God was with them. And this tiny army described as two flocks of goats, slew 100,000 footmen in a single day. God provided victory. It's incredible. But the rest fled to Aphek into the city, and there a wall fell upon them. Apparently, they were hiding behind a wall, and what did God do? Knocked the wall down and took them out. The wall fell upon 20 and 7,000 of the men that were left, and Ben-Hadad fled and came into the city into an inner chamber. And his servants, verse 31, said unto him, Behold, behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. So apparently they had a reputation. They gave mercy to their enemies. So let us, I pray thee, put sackcloth on our loins and ropes upon our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save thy life. So he gird, they girded sackcloth on their loins and put ropes on their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Thy servant Ben Hadad saith, I pray thee, let me live. And he, Ahab, said, Is he yet alive? He is my brother. Well, Ben-Hadad now, from very brash and bold and confident and overconfident, he's singing a different tune. From give me your gold, your silver, your wives, your children, to give me my life. And Ahab said, is he alive? And of course he knew he was alive. And he said, he is my brother. Listen, Ben-Hadad is not Ahab's brother. And we'll see in a few verses that Ben-Hadad is set aside by God for destruction. And because Ahab did not destroy Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad in Syria will eventually bring terrible damage and destruction to the children of Israel. God wanted him dealt with. That was part of God's battle plan. And Ahab said, is he my brother? What's probably happening at this point in history, Syria is is rising up as a world empire empire. So Ahab's looking at the situation in in the eyes of of flesh, not not in the eyes of God, probably looking at it and thought, well, listen, I I need to gather as many allies as I possibly can, especially these bordering nations. So why not become brothers? Why not become brothers in mutual defense against our enemies? And clearly, this breathed the hope into Ben-Hadad. Well, verse 33 says now the men did diligently observe whether anything would come from him in other words any sign of mercy and did hastily catch it and they said thy brother ben hadad then he said go ye bring him then ben hadad came forth to him to ahab and caused him to come up into the chariot so ahab here he made an agreement with the enemy don't ever make an agreement with the enemy It's not up for negotiation with the enemy. We don't argue with him. We just resist him, and we reject him. So he made this agreement agreement with the enemy. And listen, that wasn't Ahab's prerogative to do. God delivered that army into his people for their good and their protection. But here's Ahab now, having been warned previously that the battle was won, the victory that God had provided was to be the glory of God. Well, clearly God's reputation among the people's at stake. They said he's the God of the hills. But God said, no, 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 I'm the God over all. And I only—I not, not only want Ahab to know this, I not only want Israel to know this, but I want Syria to know this as well. So Ahab, he threw it all away to do something that was politically expedient. Nothing new under the sun, is there? To make a little more money and to make it appear that They're more secure in this agreement. Ahab has no concern over the reputation of God. He didn't care what God said. In a certain man, verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said unto his neighbor in the word of the Lord, smite me, I pray thee. And the man refused to smite him. Then he said unto him, Because thou hast not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as thou art departed from me, a lion shall slay thee. And as soon as he was departed from him, a lion found him and slew him. God has something to say about this. And he's going to rebuke him. A certain man of the son of the prophets, and this means that there was this, this thing called the school of the prophets, graduates of the school of the prophets, they would have this these men in the old testament they had this this prophetic office there were schools where their sons and other men would go to learn the torah they would learn the law of moses so they could speak on behalf of god in their culture so the certain man that's mentioned here he was one of them from the school so he said to his neighbor or a companion from the school of the prophets he said smite me strike me as a command of god Make me look like I had come out of the battle that Israel just fought. But the man refused, even with the command of the prophet of God. And we just read verse 36. Well, of course, God judged that. Then the prophet, verse 37, he found another man and said, Smite me, I pray thee. And the man smote him so that in smiting he wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with ashes upon his face. And as the king passed by, he, speaking of the prophet, cried unto the king and he said, thy servant went out into the midst of the battle and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man or a prisoner unto me and said, keep this man. If by any means he be missing, then shall my life be for his life or else thou shalt pay a talent of silver. And as thy servant or the prophet was busy here and there, he, the captive, was gone, and the king of Israel said unto him, so shall thy judgment be, thyself hast decided it. In other words, you've been negligent in keeping this prisoner. You allowed him to escape. So whatever happens to you, it becomes your problem because you failed to keep the prisoner. And of course, we see here that this whole thing was set up to get Ahab to pronounce guilt upon himself because that's what precisely precisely what he did with Ben-hadad Ahab laid down the law upon this prophet for a much lesser thing than he had done himself in releasing Ben-hadad God says I want him destroyed Ahab kept him and Ahab went and judged this this prophet a much lesser degree than his own guilt over Ben-hadad and he, verse 42, hasted <clears throat> and took the ashes away from his face, and the king of Israel discerned that he was a prophet. And he, the prophet, said unto Ahab, thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man, that man being Ben-Hadad, because you've let him go, whom I appointed to utterly utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to the house His house, heavy and displeased, I would guess so. And he came to Samaria. He said, listen, you're guilty of a greater failure than what you just judged of the prophet. You disobeyed God when you spared Ben-Hadad, and Israel will suffer. Family, God is serious when he calls for utter destruction. He was serious when he told Ahab, get rid of Ben-Hadad. I want you to turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. I'm going to spend some time here. Similar in, I guess, principle, but some important points that we need to understand. 1 Samuel 15 Let's read verses 1 through 3. Samuel, of course, was a prophet also, also said to Saul, King Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. He said, you got to listen to me now. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him, or Israel, in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they that have and spare them not. But slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now we need to understand that Amalek and the Amalekites in the scripture are a type of the flesh. And the children of Israel would have a perpetual problem with the Amalekites, much the same as we have a perpetual problem with the flesh too. But why did God want the Amalek, excuse me, Amalekites to be utterly destroyed? Well, Deuteronomy tells us, Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and nine, through 19, here's the explanation. It says, Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, When you were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it," he said. Remember, and don't forget. What did Amalek do? Well, he just told us. He met you, or he attacked you on your way. He smote or struck down the hindmost. Those, you know, the, you're, you've got this, the the children of Israel marching along out of Egypt, a million and a half, two million people perhaps. And some of them, as you might guess, they were lagging behind. I mean, this is a long string of people. Those that were behind, typically they were weary, weak, faint. So as the congregation moved from Egypt out into the wilderness, they were weary from the trip. What do you think happened to them? Well, they, they couldn't keep up with the body of the people and lag behind. They slipped to the back of the pack. And Amalek... In his army, they came up from behind attacked those that were faint and weary and weak and they took them out. And we just read that he didn't care that they were God's people. They had no fear of the Lord. No, God certainly knew of the future harm and the wickedness that Amalek would do to Israel. Just like with Ahab sparing Ben-Hadad. So knowing this, that Amalek would be a, a perpetual problem for them, He said, utterly destroy them. And I want you to take them out completely. So, if Saul had obeyed God, you know it would have been a guaranteed victory, no chance of defeat. But he was looking for Saul, King Saul, to simply obey him. For the Christian, there is a, a guaranteed victory no chance of defeat when we obey the Lord he's given us the power of his Holy Spirit in 1 John 4 verse 4 you are of God little children and have overcome them because greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world we have the Holy Spirit living in us so God has given us victory ensure though the ways of the world the flesh and the enemy, the devil, yeah, they, they stand against us, don't they? But we don't have to submit to them. Sometimes, however, we are willing, willfully obedient, or disobedient, excuse me. We're willfully obedient too, but sometimes we are willfully disobedient to what God requires of us. And this is what we see here in Saul disobedience to God and rebellion. And we know that God had a purpose. For his instruction, he said in verse 1, hearken thou the voice of the Lord. There's something that needs to be taken care of here. There's something that needs to be eradicated. And the lesson speaks to us as well. That's that's the lesson here because Amalek, as I mentioned, is a picture of the flesh. And the, the works of the flesh need to be destroyed. And, you know, we're not going out searching for Malachites. Well, they come to us, don't they? <laughs> We don't invite them in, but they arrive on the scene. And God says, you need to deal with that. And, you know, the lesson, I believe, is clear because we look to these Old Testament passages to glean truths, don't we? Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. God says... I've written these things so that you learn from them. And we have to learn from them. In acknowledging the nature of our flesh, Paul the Apostle wrote this to the Galatian church in chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God's talking about protection here. He's talking about removing the sin from our lives. Why? Well, because it's harmful. God says it takes drastic measures sometimes to remove it. Well, back to 1 Samuel 15 verse 4, the story continues. So Saul gathered the people together and he numbered them in Telaim. Two hundred thousand footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek, and he laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until thou comest to Shur, that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Hey, wait a minute. God said, destroy him. He took him alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag... And the, they saved the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuse, refuse that they destroyed utterly. God said, destroy everything. Destroy all that they have and spare nothing. I want you to slay man, woman, child, beast. So Saul gathered the troops together, 210,000 strong. He waited in a valley for an opportune time, and then he finally attacked. And he utterly destroys them all. Well, almost all. All except King Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Destroyed all but the best sheep. All but the best oxen. He kept that was good. Only destroyed those things that he considered to be vile and waste. Maybe thinking, well, what's a few sheep among the thousands? What's what's a couple of oxen? Well, it's really not his to question. God said, destroy everything for a purpose that Saul didn't understand, and clearly he didn't want to understand. And because of his lack of trust and lack of obedience, Saul did something. He applied his own reasoning, laid it over God's plan, and said, this is now my plan. And maybe thinking, well, God didn't really mean what he said. He didn't really mean to destroy all the sheep, all the oxen, or the king. Let's destroy those things that we consider to be worthless. And we're going to preserve the rest. We're going to keep the best of the best, those things that we consider to be good and wholesome. You see, though, family, we don't have the freedom to determine what sin is and what sin isn't, do we? Well, that's up to God. Well, Saul said, no." And he sinned against God because he disobeyed him, and he made a, made a decision. Well, God must have overlooked this, this one detail. there's some good oxen. There's some good sheep here. There's a king. We have to keep him. So Saul then returned to Israel, victorious, saying, "Mission's accomplished, and certainly a proud day, but God knew what take place, what took place. He was aware of Saul's disobedience. And he said to Samuel, the prophet, in verse 10 and 11, it says, Then came the word of the Lord to Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried unto the Lord all night. He's turned back from following me. He didn't say, Well, Saul, Saul kind of obeyed me. He didn't say, Saul came close. No, not at all. See, close doesn't count. Either we obey God or we don't. We either obey God or we disobey God. And Saul had nothing to stand on. Well, I got most of them. God, don't you see that I saved the best for you? No, that doesn't count. God's saying it's all or none. And Saul chose disobedience. You see, God doesn't grade on the curve. And Saul has turned back from performing, or excuse me, following me and not perform my commandments. So Samuel, verse 12, rose early to meet Saul in the morning. It was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place or a memorial to himself and has gone about and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and said, and Saul said to him, blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? So Samuel clearly, or excuse me, Saul clearly was lying to Samuel. I I did what God asked me to do, and Samuel says, "Is that a fact? Huh? What's that noise I hear? I think I hear sheep. I think I hear oxen. You see, you can't keep sin quiet, can you? You get busted. And, and sin cries out because it always finds you out." And God sees, God oversees, he's sovereign. Now, to make matters worse, now comes the excuses for disobedience. We can all be guilty of that, I suppose. And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. In other words, the people did it. I'm not responsible. They did it. For the people spared the best of the sheep of the oxen and sacrificed unto the Lord thy God. He didn't say, my God. He's talking to Samuel. He said, that's your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. The people did it. They spared the best of the beasts so we could give the best sacrifice to you, Lord. Why would we destroy something so valuable? I think God made an error when he told us to destroy everything. We destroyed the things that were unworthy. In fact, we did God a favor. And by the way, I brought back King Agag as a trophy. Verse 16, then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight... Was thou not made head of the tribe of tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me. And have brought Agag, king of, the, of Amalek, and have utter, dis, utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Samuel's reply, here it is in verse 22. Basically, he said, that's nonsense. Samuel said, hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected thee from being king. That's rebellion, isn't it? And how God despises rebellion. There's always A price to pay. And Saul paid a price. The kingdom was taken away from him because he rejected the word of the Lord. Now, keep in mind, Agag is still alive. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 1. You don't have to turn there. I'll give you a summary of it. We have the account of of Saul. About 20 years later, he's fighting the Philistines. And Saul is wounded in battle. And he addressed his attacker, and he said, Who are you? And the answer came, and he said, I am an Amalekite. Yikes. Remember, Saul was to destroy all of the Amalekites. Well, there must have been at least one more. Agang must have fathered a son who came back and destroyed Saul. And if Saul had done what God asked him to do, annihilate the Amalekites, then the Amalekites would not have been a problem. And you see, there's a very, very powerful principle working here. We need to be obedient when God lays something before us as sin, and He said, Forsake it, destroy it as the Amalekites. And you know the dangers, and I know this. If God is speaking even to any of us right now, tonight, about those Amalekites in our life, then we need to respond. Do you see the dangers here? Can you see the Amalekites just waiting? As I mentioned, they come to you, right? Just waiting to attack from behind. God says, Destroy the Amalekites in your life before they destroy you. And this is so important to God, and it should be important to us as well. And here's why. 1 Corinthians 5 6, Paul was addressing the Corinthian church. And they were in some trouble themselves. They were participating in things that they shouldn't be participating in. They were winking at sin, in fact, glorifying sin. And he said, your glory is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Just a little leaven, just a little bit. Just one good sheep, one good oxen. Saul had kept, and he came back to hurt him. Leaven grows. Then what are we to do? Well, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. And that's the way Christ made us. You know, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we have been freed from the bondage of sin. Our sin has been forgiven. And he continued, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So what Paul's saying is the Old, the Old Testament feast of the Passover for the Jews applied the blood of the lamb, remember, to the doorposts of their house. And when the angel of death saw the blood applied, he said, I will pass over your house. In other words, there's no judgment. We are under and cleansed by the blood of the lamb. Basically, the blood of Christ applied to this doorpost of this temple. And God says, I'm passing over. Well, for the Jews, God not only gave them the feast of the Passover, and this is important for us to understand, he also gave them the feast of unleavened bread, which followed the feast of Passover for seven days. And during this time, they would go into their homes, and for seven days... They would purge out any leaven. And as we know, leaven is a type of sin. For believers who have by faith received Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. the, The Passover is past history for us, isn't it? Our deliverance by the Messiah, the true Passover Lamb, has already been accomplished on the cross and in our lives. And we will never be judged for our sin because it already took place on the cross. So you and I, as believers, we are we are blessed recipients of the fruit of the Passover. For our Messiah Jesus, has taken our judgment upon himself. But for the Christian, for the believer, it's more than just being a saved person. It's more than that, because we are called to be a holy people, aren't we? We are called to be a royal priesthood, a people set apart. So rather than living in the Passover, although we remember it and it's important to remember that we live in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which for us, remember they search the houses for seven days, for us it's the process of purging and removing our sinful ways through the sanctification by God's Holy Spirit. Well, how do we remove this this leaven from our lives? Well... What we do is we take the candle. They search their homes with a candle, every single corner. We take the candle of the word of God and we use it as a light to search out our lives, don't we? Every corner, every crack, every windowsill must be scrutinized in the light. And a task isn't complete until the speck of leaven is purged. And it's a reminder for us to live our lives in such a way that we must not settle for corruption or leaven, or sin. And that the leaven needs to be continually purged from our lives as we allow the Word of God coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and to free us from that corruption. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing to live in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And God is faithful to show us those areas in our lives, isn't he? We excuse me, he's given us his word. And as we read the word of God, we say, well, that's not lining up with me right now, or I'm not lining up with that. Well, what do I do? I turn from it. God has identified some leaven through his word in my life. And it's time to say, God, that's enough. I'm I'm done with this. I I forsake this sin. You've already forgiven me. Now I just want to walk with you. I want to continue to be sanctified through your word and by your Holy Spirit. And God is faithful to complete the work that he has begun in us. And you know what, family? It's a good work. It is a good work. God only does good work. He never does marginal marginal work. It's always a good work. And purging and sanctification and cleansing, you know what? It's a magnificent work because it's evidence of the Passover where we've been passed over because of the shed blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. So Paul here is emphasizing that it's not enough that this man is saved or thinks he's saved. It's about being holy as Christians also. And that's the witness that was being lost at Corinth. Paul said it's not good. So what are we saying here tonight? You know, we've got the whole account of of um, Ben Hadad and Ahab. Ahab, of course, didn't do what God asked him to do, and it would come back to hurt them. We have the account of Saul being disobedient, not destroying the Amalekites, and what it ended up costing him his life. And of course, how does this speak to us? Well, we're agreeing that, you know, in those two accounts, that God is very, very serious about sin, isn't He? And the importance for us as members of His body is to live lives that are pleasing to Him. And God desires that sin be removed from our lives, and we're to deal with it ruthlessly, without compromise, no leaven. And and we know, family, we know it, it, it creeps into our lives, doesn't it? And sometimes we don't always address it as we ought. But it just takes a little bit, and then if unless it's dealt with properly, what happens? What happens is the exact same thing that happened with Saul. The exact same thing happened to Ahab. It would come back and grow. No leaven. You see, God's bride is beautiful, and He calls His bride to be chaste. And I believe that Ahab and Saul are—they present good lessons for us about how serious God is about sin and our need to walk in obedience. So I I say this, God, give us the strength to take this leaven and purge it from these temples. And I know that God is so faithful and he only wants what's best for me. He only wants what's best for you. And that is to deal with these things as they come up. Maybe there's something you've been dealing with. Maybe it's time tonight to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of this Amalekite in my life. I'm going to confess it to the Lord. I'm going to repent of it. And ask God to just restore me fully and wholly that I can live a life that's pleasing to him in all ways. And you know, I'm so thankful that God is gracious to us. Aren't you? You know, if you're anything like me, you sin daily in some way. And you know, we can't overlook it and say, well, yeah, it's not that big a deal. It's just one little sheep, one little oxen that God said, get rid of and I didn't do it. That's not that big a deal. Well, God says it is a big deal. It's a big deal to him because it's an offense to him. And if we really understand that, that sin separates us from God. You know, whenever you get into, say for example, you probably never do get in an argument with anybody, I have before. And you walk away unresolved, <laughs> What happens? It's like it gnaws at you, it gnaws at you, it gnaws at you until you deal with it properly. And that is to come together. If you need to repent, repent. Ask forgiveness, ask forgiveness. And then restoration takes place. And that is the way it is with God too. Sin separates us, but confession and repentance repentance takes that separation and gets rid of it. And praise God, he's given us that opportunity. Day upon day upon day, our gracious God loves us and wants to keep short accounts with him. So Father, we come to you tonight and we ask for the strength, not just the strength. We need that. We need the strength to resist. But we also need to have ears that are open to hear the things you speak to us. Because I know that in my life, Lord, you identified when I first came to you some major things that needed to be changed, and I thank you for that. But as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, you continually peel away layers as an onion in our lives and reveal things that we probably never saw or even knew before. Perhaps it's a thought or an attitude or a motive, something, God, and None of us can say that we haven't sinned. So help us not to just identify them, but to turn from them, and just so that we can have a complete and total, totally intimate relationship with you. And that's your desire for each of us. So we surrender this to you tonight, God, and do with, take this message and do what it needs to be done in each of our lives, that we would be well-pleasing to you to your glory, that others would see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that we would lead lives that, that speak of your goodness, your goodness, to your glory and to your praise and to your honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.